We'd like to welcome you back to part two of our current event and weekly Bible study for October 26th, 2014. Another um, report from the Q files. This gentleman says, my mom's best friend in Dallas just told us that she is friends with a man named Lawrence who works with Mrs. Vincent's fiancé who is the second nurse that was diagnosed with Ebola. His company is being informed by the CDC of what is going on. He said two more Ebola patients diagnosed at Baylor in Texas are confirmed on Friday, but kept out of the news. Baylor did not want to keep them, so they sent them to Presbyterian, whatever hospital that is. This isn't random info. It's literally my mom's best friend who has been telling her about Lawrence since this happened. Another friend told me a week or so ago that her contact at CDC said they are hiding Ebola patients in Hawaii, Virginia, um, Maryland, and one other state I forgot. I hope this isn't true, but I believe my mom's best friend. Now, I wouldn't even say this if I didn't have other confirmation this is going on. And this is what we're going to get into next. Will the media ignore the doctors reporting disappearance of Ebola-like patients? Bombshell revelations swept under the rug. Let's go ahead and play this particular video first. That's me doing all the techno in the background. Just kidding. All right, welcome back to the Alex Jones Show. I'm David Knight. We've been talking to Anthony Gucciardi, and he had some breaking news about a Harvard study that was very impressive about mice immunity, but, and we can come back to that, but I want to get to this physician, uh, James in Missouri, he says gear is being pulled, and uh, he's on a cell phone with a low battery. James, are you still there? Yeah, hi. Hi. Um, appreciate you taking my call. I was unable to listen live. I usually listen to podcasts. I had no idea what you guys were talking about. But uh, a couple things I wanted to discuss. Um, I'm a family medicine physician just south of Kansas City in, in uh, Cass County. Um, and there's HTA is a company that owns hospitals all around the country, and they own... Uh, I think four of the, the big hospitals in the Kansas City area. And there was a nurse that is a friend of mine that uh, told me, called me today and told me that the HCA had pulled all of their hazmat gear out of all the hospitals that she's verified. She called the other hospitals in the area, pulled all of their gear that would be able to protect, potentially protect uh, people from Ebola, uh, flu, or, or uh, tuberculosis or any other illnesses, they pulled everything out of uh, their storage. Hmm. They have not replaced it with anything yet. Did they give you a reason? Uh, yeah, was there any no reason? reason? Was this equipment there that they had no before, reason. was this equipment they had before the Ebola outbreak, or was this something that was added after the Ebola outbreak, or? Well, they did it. What, what the individual uh, departments had done was sent out these uh, little kits where, in my opinion, are worthless, N95 mask and goggles, uh, the booties, the gloves, you know, uh, the, which is inadequate, but it was, at least it was something. But they, uh, it includes everything that was there before, plus anything that may have been added since the Ebola outbreak. They have not replaced it. There has been no communication. I specifically asked her to give a reason. Um, and, and the department manager of her department in the ICU of one of the hospitals here told her that they, they assume that they're going to try to standardized care and, and make sure everybody has the same thing. But they've pulled everything. They have nothing. Well, they care about you. Uh, They're going to standardize care by taking everything you have to protect against actually infecting everyone in the hospital with Ebola or actually tuberculosis. Right. They, they obviously it care about you. It absolutely makes no sense. 
Well, and it, uh, a couple other things. I, uh, last week, um, uh, I'm out of residency. I'm out of practicing position, but a friend of mine who is in residency at, uh, I'll go ahead and say the hospital, Research Medical Center in Kansas City, had a potential, this is not the KU case, there's a KU meds in, near here, but this was another case that they potentially had Ebola, and they came out and uh, the patient basically disappeared um, after This is they, what we've been told over and over again. Can you confirm, have you heard other stories about this? I've talked to nurses and doctors, and yes. Dr. Group told us, they're disappearing people with apparent Ebola cases. Two weeks ago, before this really started getting, well, actually three weeks ago, at Truman Medical Center, there was a patient that disappeared. Uh, and it wasn't even, they didn't even turn into a John Doe, which is a patient, which is a name they give to people that don't have names, that they don't, you know, that, that may come in unconscious or whatever. There was a patient uh, that came in that was in septic shock, bleeding, typical Ebola symptoms, and they isolated him, moved him to, uh, to the, the, the uh, ICU out of the ER. The patient disappeared. They had a meeting with all the residents or whoever had contact with that patient and told them that he had uh, malaria, did not have Ebola, which malaria is not a hemorrhagic disease. It's totally, you know, and mm -hmm. then I started hearing, I thought, well, maybe he was, my son was exaggerating, but then you heard about all these other cases around the country where every single time they said, no, they didn't have Ebola, they had malaria. Mm -hmm. well, the patient disappeared, and, and uh, my friend did a little bit of research. They could not find that patient in the hospital. He was gone. And they don't even do a test. James, uh, James after we're done, could you hold on? We want to get your phone number. Because here's the thing, I've talked to physicians time and time again, they all confirm to say the same thing, but they are so afraid to speak on air. So this is, this is the, what we're seeing now. From multiple different sources, from doctors calling in, to other reports of people being disappeared, of, of what, they're being, what they're telling the hospital staff is, oh, the, they just have malaria. Well, we, we sent them to a different hospital. Or they had TB. We sent them to a different hospital. And nobody's being told... So this is happening now. Uh, over and over and over again. It's all being suppressed in the uh, news. Now, going back to this report. Since even before the inception of Ebola fears within the United States, doctors and experts alike have been sounding the alarm over underground measures taken by the CDC to, quote, disappear patients exhibiting signs of potential Ebola infection. We have heard warnings from former top Border Patrol Zach Taylor, who revealed both in the March video, and we played that video in the previous teaching, um, uh, that the CDC was snatching up individuals with flu-like symptoms on the border. We have heard warnings from physicians behind the scenes at medical conferences detailing how up to 40 cases of potential Ebola are reported each day. 40 cases potential Ebola are reported to the CDC each day by qualified health professionals and are being virtually ignored. But until now, these physicians have demanded to stay anonymous for fear they could lose their license and be terminated from their positions. Leading the charge in informing the public as to what we've been gathered from the medical professionals speaking off the record, Dr. James um, Lorenzi, uh, Lorenzi, who's a DO, exclusively confirmed these reports by the doctors regarding actions taken by the CDC and um, to come in and disappear patients from hospitals who show signs of Ebola, appearing for the first public breakdown of what has been told by others in the field, Lorenzi dropped informational bombshells that the mainstream media should be very concerned about. So I'm going to play um, some of this video 
and um, which is going to kind of go into this. Encourage other medical doctors or medical workers to call in. We can vet who you are, either protect your identity, or if you want to go public, that's fine. There's strength and safety in numbers. James, uh, doctor, you have amazing courage. Thank you for doing this. We said you didn't have to use your name. You proved who you were. Uh, you still have given us that intel. Thank you. Um, tell us exactly what you know and what you're being told. Um, well, so about four weeks ago, uh, when the Ebola thing really started kicking off here in, in the United States, and, and uh, all of a sudden you started hearing about patients possibly having Ebola, the hospitals were beginning to test for it. Uh, well, a friend of mine that's a resident at uh, Truman Medical Center, which is where I did my residency at, called me and said, "Hey, you know, we've got a we've got a possible Ebola patient here, and uh, he's bleeding out of all of it. I'm not going to use the language to use, but he's bleeding out of all of his orifices. He's in septic shock." Hypotensive, high fever. He was visiting Africa. He was from Africa, uh, I believe, and had recently been uh, here in the Kansas City area. And uh, excuse me, they took care of him in the ICU. Of course, it was not a rapid test, so they, they weren't sure. But they they I think they ordered the test and they sent it off. And they moved him to the ICU and they uh, put him in isolation. From what my friend uh, had told me, the following day he called me back. And as I told him, let me know. I, uh, I, was, I wanted to call your show. I wanted to let people know, though, hey, we've got a case here in Kansas City. Well, he called me back the next day and said they disappeared the patient. I said, what do you mean they disappeared him? So the patient's gone. Um, they were told uh, that he left AMA, which means against medical advice. But the guy was, wasn't, he couldn't even, he wouldn't have been able to leave. I mean, he was in that bad of a shape. Well, I said, well, look for uh, John Doe, which is the name that they use in hospitals in case you know, that, that somebody's admitted that they don't know who you are. And there was no John Doe's in the hospital, so the, the, the patient disappeared. Well, the following day, they had a meeting uh, with anybody that had contact with that patient and said that uh, he didn't have Ebola, he had malaria. Well, all of a sudden, I, I, that's when we heard that all these other cases in these other cities, they were coming back and saying, no, they didn't have Ebola, they had malaria. That seemed like that was their, the... That's what they were told to tell everybody. Um, well, then we had a second patient at Research Medical Center that uh, was rumored to have, because I have my friends there, too, and they called me, so we have a possible Ebola patient. That patient disappeared. Um, There's there a patient more recently at KU Medical Center, which is just you know, down just across on the Kansas side, about 20 minutes from here. And uh, that patient, I don't know what the status of that patient is, but they came out and said they didn't have the people that they had, had typhoid. Um, so there, something is very, very strange is going on, and it, it, I wouldn't have thought much about it, but this is happening in other areas uh, of the country, not only in this, not only in Kansas City. These patients are disappearing; they're doing something on the patients, and, and God knows where they're going. Okay, um, I've been having some pretty massive technical difficulties with my voice recorder here, just out of the blue for no reason. Never, ever had a problem with this voice recorder in all the years I've had it. And I don't know if it's because Satan don't want you to hear what's in this next little part or what, but it just came out of the blue. So I'm going to try for the third time now to play or record this next four-minute audio clip uh, regarding this interview. Whistle to others, uh, because I think a lot of this is just ignorance, but we do need whistleblowers 
to call in. We didn't need them to confirm or deny this or give us more intel. The problem is I've already confirmed what you're saying from folks in Texas. Um, anything else you'd like to add out there uh, for listeners? Um, just be be aware, be careful, stay away from, from places where there's a, there's large groups of people. I, I really think this is much more serious than they're letting on, whether this is really Ebola or something else. Something is going on. Um, they're, they're preparing for something, and uh, I think they're, they're doing the information coming out as long as possible because they're putting whatever system they're trying to put into place uh, for whether it's the martial law situation or if they're going to, you know, because some of those executive orders of Bonestine uh, takes over all medical personnel. And I don't know if they're trying to get that set up. I, I don't know. It's just just keep your eyes and ears open and, and stay out of hospitals if you can. That's the worst place in the world to be right now, um, especially flu season coming around. It's going to be a nightmare. With flu season hits, uh, people are going to be coming to the hospital for flu or Ebola or they don't know what they have. And, you know, it's going to be around a lot of bunch of other people. It, it, it's going to be a nightmare. Uh, and, and every doctor that I've spoken with is, is terrified of this, this fall. So there you have an MD actually who actually makes his living in a hospital telling you whatever you do, stay out of the hospitals, particularly this coming fall and winter when you have the flu and you have Ebola and who knows what else cropping up. And, uh, Let me ask you this. We're going to skip this network break. I know you've got to go in just a few minutes, but I'm going to keep you as long as we can. Tell me when you've got to go. Uh, the other key question, what do the other medical doctors, what do the nurses, what do they think is going on? Uh, is it a state of concern, a state of not caring, a state of panic, uh, of quiet panic? What's going on? Well, a lot of them come up to me, and I say, well, I'll let you know when it's time to panic. But they are very, very concerned. And they've, uh, several nurses and other personnel have spoken with their families and come up to me and said, hey, if, if we have a, an Ebola case, I'm not coming to work. Um, I'm staying home. I'm taking care of my family. And, well, especially uh, when you don't have the right gear. Correct. That's correct. We, there's, and there's been no training at the hospital. There's been no – and I call the, the infectious disease nurse and said, listen, we – we need to practice this scenario. We need to know where, where to go. Where's the gear at? Oh, we've got it covered. Don't worry about it. And, and they don't. And nobody, everybody's freaking out. All it's like nobody knows what to do. <laughs> There's a, again an MD telling you they're not training the doctors, the nurses. They don't have the proper gear. They're literally taking the gear away now. What little they had, they're taking away. They're disappearing the patients. There. I mean, it's like it's total insanity. But it's becoming what the norm is. And then the nurses are flat out telling the doctors, listen, because of all this, because we're so ill-equipped, because we don't know what we're doing, because we don't even have the proper gear, if we have an, a, a diagnosed Ebola patient, guess what, doc? I'm not showing up for work. And this is what we're seeing already in New York City. And this is going to be an epidemic uh, of... of um, Behavior patterns among nurses, and I don't blame them. Blame them at all. Uh, so this is something else to to consider. Um, uh, so there is a sense of panic that's slowly occurring, uh, at least at our hospital. I can't speak for the other hospital, but the drug reps are actually. I'm getting a lot of information from them because they go around. We, we see the same reps all the time and kind of develop a personal relationship with them. And uh, they go around and talk to other doctors, and they, they're telling me the same thing. It's like that's all they're talking about. So the drug reps who see multiple doctors at different hospital facilities, at different medical facilities, are saying it's the same 
They're seeing this across the board in the hospitals they're going to. So, and again, it's it's all been done this way by design. What do we do? I say, I, I, I don't know. Get, get some colloidal silver. I, you know, that's the only thing I know that's going to help you. And um, get some N95 masks and stay away from public places. But uh, uh, people are very concerned about it. So in your medical opinion, uh, you think there's some evidence showing that colloidal silver uh, is a good uh, alternative antibiotic? Absolutely, because I, I actually have a, uh, a, a, a generator that I, I purchased from, I won't name where I got it from, but I spoke with the guy that made it, and uh, he's got some information. There's actually a, a U.S. Army study that I pulled that shows that it does kill Ebola. Um, they, they, they tested it back in, I think it was in the 80s, uh, that you can, anybody can search for it and find it. Colonial silver does kill Ebola. Uh, it kills uh, as well as a flu virus. Uh, and, and any other viruses that, that may be... Well, sure, silver's always been... So, we have a medical doctor there flat out stating that colloidal silver does kill Ebola from this army study from the 80s. Now, the problem you're, you're running into here is, while that is true, these studies that they're in reference to are in vitro studies. They're studies that were done essentially in Petri dishes. Not the same as trying to battle Ebola in the human body. When you take colloidal silver in and let's say you um, hold it in your mouth and let it try to get as much as possible sublingual absorption, meaning absorption from uh, the sublingual under your tongue, was what sublingual means, portion of your mouth. In that way, the colloidal silver will get into the bloodstream. Here's the problem. If the average person has 7 liters of blood in their body, as soon as the colloidal silver hits the bloodstream, it's going to start to become diluted. There's a big difference between an in vivo study, meaning a study done in the body, than an in vitro study, meaning done in a Petri dish. Think about it this way. You take a Petri dish, you put Ebola in there. Okay, You take, I don't know, 10 part, 20 part per million colloidal silver, and you drop it right on to the Ebola virus. Wow, it kills it. Great, okay? But that's not the same as in the body. When you're instantly diluting the colloidal silver hundreds of times because of the seven liters of blood. So if you take 10 part per million in your mouth, and let's say it's true particulate colloidal silver, it's going to get diluted hundreds of times by all the blood. Therefore, you would have to take just, you'd have to drink it by the gallon to get a therapeutic effect in the bloodstream of somebody who actually has Ebola. In other words, to get a therapeutic effect, you have to take a therapeutic dosage. In vivo, the difference between in vitro, meaning in a Petri dish, and in vivo is in the body. This is what we really care about. It's all well and good to know colloidal silver kills Ebola in a Petri dish. That's great. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. And it doesn't surprise me a bit. Colloidal silver annihilates anything of a viral, bacterial, or fungal origin, typically. Okay, even the Science Digest admitted that it killed up to 650 different varieties there. Uh, back in the 70s, I've, I've quoted that quote many times. Okay, so, if you're going after something in the body, particularly if it's something virulent, you want a high part per million colloidal silver in order to get the job done. You take a 10 part per million colloidal silver, let's think of it like taking 10 troops with you into battle. 
you're battling this really, really nasty foe, and you've got an army of ten. And you're taking that into battle. You're going to you're gonna have to take a whole lot of that ten part per million in order to get anything done. Whereas if you're taking 5,000 or 10,000 part per million, you already have a built-in army of 5 to 10. He mentioned the silver generators. If you buy a silver generator, typically about 90% of what you're producing from a silver generator, meaning a generator where they generate colloidal silver electronically off to 99.999% silver rod, Okay, I don't have anything against the generators, but here's the problem. And I've stated this before, but I'm going to restate it because it's very pertinent to this. When you make colloidal silver in that fashion, you're electrically generating it. Around 90% of what you're going to produce off an electrical silver generator is ionic silver. When you make silver electrically, typically that's what you're making, ionic silver. If you buy it in the store and it's made electrically, which is 95, 99% of what you're going to buy in a health food store, it's electrically generated. That is mostly ionic silver, not colloidal. Colloidal is true particulate silver, preferably with a uniform particle size. Ionic silver is electrically generated. It's very easy to make. It's highly unstable, and it typically does not have a very long shelf life. Here's the problem with ionic silver in the bloodstream, or in the body. Ionic silver will quickly, if you take it in the mouth, it will quickly combine with the chlorides in the bloodstream, okay, to make silver chloride, okay? That is essentially inert in the body. It has about a 5-10 second life in the body. Okay? If it hits the stomach acid, guess what? It's going to combine with the chlorides in the stomach acid via hydrochloric acid. Again, you're going to have a 5-10 to 10 second usable life in the body. It's not going to kill you. It's not toxic, but if you take enough of it in, it will turn you gray eventually. And I told you, I've, I've met people that were gray. One, when I was doing my lecture in Topeka, um, that 14 City tour I did, it was a pastor's wife, and she came up to me, she was morbidly gray. That fresh out of the casket look that we all know and love. And she was rather, like, proud of the fact, she came up to me, she says, hey, I heard your presentation, I take coital silver, I make it myself, which means she's really taking ionic silver, I drink 16 ounces a day. It turned me gray, but I never get sick. I'm like, well, you have that as an option. Uh, cosmetically, it's a little awkward, but hey, you know, you can do that. I mean, it will build up in the soft tissues if you take that much. The ionic silver is unstable. It's a low-grade form. It will tend to build up in the soft tissue if you take enough of it. I mean, if you're doing a teaspoon a day, it's not going to do that. If, if you Probably if you did... Four ounces a day, it wouldn't do that. But 16 ounces, yeah. There was another guy in Bellevue where I used to speak uh, down there at those lectures I did. And and he was, I, first time I saw him, I thought, man, he's got that gray power of cancer look, you know. But it wasn't that. It was that he, he took way too much colloidal silver. The the guy that, that turned blue, the blue man, he drank 16 ounces a day. And it showed him with his generator right there. And that's the one they always want to parade out in front of everyone. Look at the blue man. Look at what colloidal silver does to you. This is typical. 
You know, here's a guy that was drinking 16 ounces a day, turned him, I mean, like grayish blue, really, he looked like a freak. And they're the, that's the guy they always want to parade out in front of everybody. That is what ionic silver will do to you when consumed in copious amounts. Okay? Just flat out. Yes, it does have some therapeutic effect. It's very short acting. Now, it's fine for topical application, the, the, um, the generator silver. It's fine because you're not so much having to worry about the chlorides in the skin. Okay? It's more so when it hits the bloodstream and when it, you get into the stomach acid of the, of the uh, stomach. That's when you're going to have to worry about that. Okay, whereas true particulate, colloidal silver, that is not electrically made, which is very rare, which is what invive silver is, which has uniform particle size, that will not combine with the chlorides in the blood and in the stomach acid to form silver chloride. It is true particulate silver. It's a totally different animal we're dealing with here. It's literally like comparing apples to oranges. Okay, and to give you a little background on Invive Silver. Invive Silver, mild silver protein, is made under pharmaceutical GMP or good manufacturing practices and guidelines with double checkoff lists. The silver that is used is the finest available and is the same silver used in the 1938 edition of the 12th volume of British Encyclopedia of Medical Practice, Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons. The compound used to make the silver are identical to the silver compounds used in burn wards across America, because it's very, very good for burns. As a result, they can achieve a uniform particle size of 0.3 microns, which is something most companies know nothing about and strive to only have the smallest nanometer size particles. Which is, again, oh, it's nanosilver, it's better, it's smaller, it's better. Okay, says who? You? Well, yes, it's nanosilver. We're going to talk about nanosilver next, okay, or, or coming up. We're going to go into that in depth. Because it keeps coming up over and over again. And I really believe there's an agenda behind why they want to get everybody using nanosilver. And using it particularly for Ebola. That's We're going to get into that in a minute. Or a little bit later. Okay. The par- problem with nanometer sized particles is that they are not large enough to give off as many silver atoms as the better micron sized particles. Meaning a larger micron sized particle is going to give off more silver atoms. Okay. Nanosilver, because they're so unbelievably tiny, cannot give off very many atoms. So there's a, there's a huge problem with nanosilver right there, and that's only one of them. Not to mention the, the fact that the nanosilver is primarily electrically generated, which is, I just got into the problems there, which would make it mostly ionic. The benefits of colloidal or particulate silver in the body is produced by the micron size, not nanometer size metallic silver particles, and not the ions in an ionic silver solution. We want true particulate silver. Okay, This is true colloidal silver, going all the way back into the early 1900s. Invised particle size is perfect because it's still much smaller than the bacterium, which are approximately 0.5 microns. Therefore, invived silver particles can go wherever the bacteria are because the invived silver particles are approximately 100 times smaller than um, the bacteria as invived smallest particles start at 0.3 microns. Uh, Because invived silver is so stable, it has a bare minimum 15-year shelf life. It's way more than that. They've still got bottles from 1993 that have not went bad. 
Okay, so that's over over 20 years. Okay, um, there is a retest date on the bottle, um, and actually, I don't think they're doing the retest date. I think they're doing expirations now. I think they're, it's like 2028, 20, 2027, 20, and that's purely there for FDA reasons. That's that's the only reason it's there. There's a very good chance these could actually survive 100 years. Okay, these bottles. So that's another really good reason because like when I said before when I work with that company Utopia Silver which put out a 20 part per million silver it's the same thing as Mezzo Silver same exact exact silver I knew the president of the company I was working with him this is when I was first getting into colloidal silver and he told me on the phone one day jokingly that you know it's crazy we, we make this stuff electrically and it literally costs me more in packaging than it does for me to cost the, the glass bottle and the styrofoam packaging costs way more than actually the silver itself. And he was joking. I mean, you can imagine what his profit margin was. Um, so, then around the same time, I found out about Invive. And um, I've told that that story before, that um, how, how I found out about it, which I believe there was some divine intervention regarding that. Uh, there's no colloidal silver in any form that can even come close to the shelf life or potency nor has there ever been one case of Argyria, which is when you turn gray, which is they'll, they'll have, you know, the, anybody that turns gray, that's the one you're going to see on the 6 o'clock news, because they got to demonize colloidal silver, okay? There's never been one case of Argyria turning gray reported from taking in Vive Silver. Now, you would think if it was so bad, because, you know, their, their propaganda is that, oh, it's too strong, it'll turn you gray. Well, there's never been one reported case of Invive Silver turning anyone gray. Why is it that the super, super weak stuff is turning people gray? Well, because it's inferior. It turns into silver chloride in the body. And that gets into the soft tissue, especially if you're drinking 16 ounces a day. <laughs> That's why. You know, you want to drink water when you're taking colloidal silver, particularly if you're taking a therapeutic dose, just from the Herxheimer effect alone. Herxheimer, or die-off effect of, of the silver killing all the bad guys in your body. You want to flush that out with purified water. Um, so anyway, that's a little bit of um, little bit of information there, and I've got a whole file on the difference between ionic silver and colloidal silver that really gets into this. If you ever need me to send it to you, just email me. I'll send it to you, and I will load your boat on this particular subject. You have to understand when I did that 14 city tour back in 06, I got I, I fielded. A, a good hour's worth of questions, anywhere from a half hour to an hour's worth, every single night after the lecture was done for 16 different cities. And I got very well versed in, you know, what I was going to be asked and in information and having to go and back up what I'm saying. And um, so I've compiled quite a bit of information that would answer almost any question you could have on, on the subject of colloidal silver. I'm not going to have every single uh thing but i've got i've got quite a bit so let's go further here um okay um i'm going to uh go right now into the nano silver portion cuz i think it would be kind of ridiculous to come back to it after i've already started this broached this subject here uh 
I am getting, and there's so many things on different alternative news sites, including Mike Adams, including whatever, about Rima Labo, General Stubblebine, Natural Health Solutions, and the 10 part per million nano silver Ebola cure. Okay? Um, I've already told you why I do not believe any colloidal silver, including in Vive at 10 part per million, is going to cure Ebola, unless you literally drank it by the gallon. But I think your kidneys couldn't even handle how much you would need in order to, to because it's the 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 vibe so much more concentrated at five to ten part ten thousand parts per million. Okay, um, it's just a matter of it being literally hundreds to thousands of times more concentrated. <laughs> you don't have to take near as much. As a result of that, it's more concentrated, and so I really believe that this. And it's been this way ever since I can remember. There is more disinformation and more bad information about colloidal silver than any other health subject that there is, that I've ever seen, consistently. And I think the reason that is, is because the, the government has known how important this could potentially be. And again, I get into this in my, in my um, the little study I did online, about colloidal silver, just key in Dr. Scott Johnson colloidal silver, and you'll see my, I don't know, half hour study on it, or 40 minutes maybe, and um, I get into the history of colloidal silver, and the Food and Drug Administration takeover in 1939, when at that time, you could literally go to, up until that time I should say, you could literally go to your doctor, you go to him with a sore throat, he prescribes you colloidal silver, literally mild silver protein is what he was what he prescribed you, okay? Because you can make a much higher concentration with mild silver protein. You can make a much stronger medical grade with with mild silver protein because the mild silver the the the, the protein in it is acting as a suspension agent for the silver, which allows you to make it more concentrated than just using water. Up until 1939, if you were diagnosed with things, and I talked to people at my lectures when I did that 14-city tour. I talked to people at the lectures, old-timers, that said, I remember those days when you could literally go, and I got a prescription for colloidal silver. And what would happen is they would either compound the silver at the MD's office, or they would send you to a local pharmacist where they would compound it right there. The catch was... You had to take it within like a one to two week period, almost like a cycle of antibiotics. Not because you needed to, well, I understand like what they, they want you to do the antibiotics to make sure you got everything killed. Kind of for that reason, but also because it would become unstable so quickly at that strength level. They did not have a way to stabilize it back then. Well, the MDs had no, no, um, interest, ultimately, in having something like colloidal silver that could potentially cure up to 650 different bacterial, viral, things of that nature. They really didn't have any uh, interest in that because they don't want to cure anything. I'm not saying MDs, but the medical cartel had no interest in curing anything. It was also a natural compound that they really couldn't um, put a patent on either, which also made it much less desirable. They want things they can put patents on and that are drugs and that cause side effects and that, does, that don't cure anything but actually put band-aids on things and give you symptomatic relief but in the long term leave you worse off because of all the side effects. 
Okay, Antibiotics pretty much do that because they kill all your healthy flora, they decimate your own immune system, so it sets you up for another cycle of antibiotics. That's why antibiotics came into vogue and into being in 1939, Food and Drug Administration takeover. And that's when colloidal silver went bye-bye that was that were being compounded in the labs, in the pharmacies, and say hello to the new wonder drug, sulfur-based antibiotics. That's when it happened. That was the turning point. That was when colloidal silver fell out of favor, fell out of vogue, and pretty much, I really believe, probably to a certain extent, started to become demonized. Didn't fit their, their corrupt mode of how they made money. Always comes back to money and control. So, getting into this nano-silver warning, I, I, and again, almost all of the information I have seen since in the last two to three to four months about colloidal silver is all focused in on nano-silver, 10 part per million. It's all coming from the same source, Rima Labo, General Stubblebine, her wonderful hubby. Do you realize General Stubblebine is the guy that was in charge of the remote viewing project for our government? Remote viewing, which is like right up there with astral projection, where they would li- they've spent millions on this to, to take our troops in and have them remote view, meaning they would like literally... Um, I'm not saying they go out of body like astral projection, but it's about the closest thing to it where they literally can view something that's going on 10,000 miles over in Russia and spy on our enemies. It's totally evil and demonic and it's very high level witchcraft. He was the guy that was in charge of that. I mean, this isn't a secret if you, if you, if you research this. I have a whole file on these two. They are disinformation agents of the government. They have been for a long time. That's why when this all stuff all started coming out about them saying Rima Labo up there with her doctor coat and her stethoscope, and she's not even a doctor, which is even more revolting. She's acting like she's some big doctor or whatever, and, and, and like a medical doctor. Okay, she's got she's got a stethoscope around her neck and a white lab coat. I mean, it's so contrived. And she's up here saying, this is the cure for Ebola, and they're trying to suppress it, and they're blocking it from going into Africa, and all of this stuff. The studies she's citing are in vivo studies. Or, I'm sorry, in vitro. Petri dish studies. Yeah, nanosilver probably can kill Ebola at 10 part per million in a Petri dish. Probably can. It's not being diluted with 7 liters of blood like an in vivo study. It's not having a chance to come in contact with the chloride of the blood, which would render an ionic silver useless. Which I just got into that. It's not having a chance to do that. So they cite that and act like, as long as you have 10 part per million, I wouldn't even tell you to have 10 part per million in Vive and tell you that would help you both. I can't really say a whole lot about anything as far as a cure quote, cure anyway. Only the guys with the white lab coats, like Rima Labo, even though she's a wannabe, can say that, evidently. you got to stay away from the C word, you know? But I wouldn't even tell you 10 part per million in Vive would do that. It's not strong enough. You got If you're going to go into battle, you want a lot of strength. You want a lot of troops. Do you want 10? Or do you want 5,000? Or do you want 10,000 with you? It's how you have to look at it. It's a matter of numbers and overwhelming your opponent. 
Now, I'm not saying the Lord Jesus Christ can't protect you from all of this. I've said that many times. I'm not saying you got to go out and buy this. I'm just telling you, I'm getting into, like, chemistry here with, with what is the difference between ultra, ultra tiny, 10 part per million nanosilver and uniform particle size, much larger in 5 miles silver protein. Okay, what is the difference? And I've already kind of answered that question already. Let me just read this from what I had. Most of the current reports regarding natural treatment of Ebola are centered around the 10 part per million nanosilver advocated by Rima Labo and General Stubblebine, both government disinformation agents slash operatives for years. See, they've been doing this for years. John Hamill exposed them. Um, I mean, that guy was a madman. I don't know what happened to him, but he was a madman. And he totally had them pegged. Put out all kind of stuff on them. On their false agenda. And they're, see, they're, they're there working as government disinformation agents to try to get you moving in one direction. They're trying to like herd you and acting like they're one of the good guys. And we're one of the guys that are here to you know, put out truth. And it's actually the exact opposite. I've never trusted them. Uh, and this is, their organization is Natural Health Solutions. Um, now, I posted my audio teaching below of, for 8.3.14 Part 3. I did this um, back in uh, August. And in part, the very, very end of it, I got into them. Okay, I did a whole study. So I'm not going to redo that whole thing I did. I, I didn't do as much on the nanosilver in that study, and that's why I'm doing it this study. Okay, so I give you the link to that if you want to hear it. I give you the link to that PDF. And that PDF has the whole file I have on General Stubblebine and this Rima Labo and their natural health solutions and their agenda, because there is a huge agenda there. And I'm going to explain to you in a second why I think they're doing this. They want... They want... Um, to get everyone thinking that all they need is 10 part per million nanosilver to battle Ebola. And they are going to have a real rude awakening if that is w- what they're relying on and then contract Ebola. Meaning a person that has all this 10 part per million nanosilver, if they contract Ebola, they're going to have a rude awakening. The weak 10 part per million nanosilver solution is not nearly strong enough to go after something like Ebola, especially when compared to 5,000 or 10,000 part per million miles of protein. Also, not to advise taking vitamin C, true natural vitamin C, and selenium, which are the two most important components depleted by Ebola, and I've went over this over and over again, also proves that they are disinformation agents. Because it's not just silver. Okay, I'm going to get into something after this that's totally separate than the silver that, that, could, that could potentially cure Ebola. So, I'm, it's not because I'm up here just saying it's only silver, it's got to be that. No, there's other ways you can cure Ebola, I believe. That's being suppressed too. What they want to do, though, is get everybody thinking, just 10 part per million nanosilver. Oh, they're blocking. Oh, they're doing this. Oh, poor Rima Labo. This and that. So, everybody stocks up on their nanosilver. Everybody's making their generator silver, which is also about 10 parts per million. If you're making it, uh, you better be drinking it pretty quick because it has an extremely short shelf life. Remember that silver that <coughs> excuse me that I told you about before that was with uh, Utopia silver. When I stopped using that, I, it was about six months. And oh, I looked one day and I looked at the bottles. All the silver had fallen to the bottom of the bottle. It had fo- totally fell out of solution because there's no stabilizing agent. It's electrically made. It doesn't have a very long shelf life. It never drinks silver if it's done that. 
mean, that's <laughs> don't shake it up and think that, that that's the way to go. It's ionic anyway. I wouldn't advise it for internal consumption. I wouldn't advise it for anything once it's fallen to the bottom. But if you make your own via a generator, and, and again, that's fine for topical consumption, but you want to use it pretty quickly. You know, because if you don't and you let it fall to the bottom, you cannot, don't shake it and try to drink it thinking you're getting the same thing. Because that's, that's even worse than, than, um, drinking it right off the, right out of the, uh, generator. Um, anyway, for the reasons I've stated. They're not getting into the whole vitamin C selenium. And if, and if anybody is talking about vitamin C, it's always ascorbic acid. We've got to have the ascorbic, oh, the one that's made from GMO corn, which is where like 99% of all ascorbic acid comes from. Genetically modified corn. One of the most toxic things you can put, that's where they're getting the, the, the ascorbic acid, that chemical that they call vitamin C. It's not vitamin C at all. It's just the protective component of vitamin C, and it's not isolated. In nature, it comes as a package. God made it as a package in nature, like on an orange where ascorbic acid is on the rim, protecting the internal components like organic copper and tyranase and things called P-factors and J-factors and other things like that in the vitamin C complex. I've covered this before. Key in vitamin C in the keyword search box at contendingfortruth.com. I mean, to me, people ask me, what do I do about this? I don't tell them to start loading up on the colloidal silver now. I tell them, get your selenium and your vitamin C up. Okay, first, get those up, because that's the main two things that Ebola depletes. Get your primary immune system, which is what those things support, functioning well. Selenium is highly antiviral. Um, Vitamin C is integral for your immune system. Get those two things high, okay? Save the colloidal silver till you need it, okay? I mean, you can take 15 drops, an adult can take 15 drops a day, if they want to keep candida levels down, and I could do a teaspoon. It's just really expensive to do that. <laughs> you know, 15 drops, though. I mean, you, a bottle lasts you, like, I don't even know how long. There's, like, over 2,000 drops per four-ounce bottle. So that's a pretty economical way to take it. If you want to do that, I do 15 drops, like, once a week, twice a week. It depends, you know. Um, but I don't take it every day. I would rather see somebody save that for more the uh, eventual scenario. Now, if you're if you're battling through something, if you've got something chronic that is of a bacterial or viral origin, sure, there's protocols for that, and you can go up to uh, doctordr-johnson.com, click on the doctor's desk reference, and there's hundreds of protocols there for the Invive. And if it doesn't say the actual part per million, assume it's five thousand. It, I think it says that at the very very beginning. These are all, unless it's otherwise stated, 5,000 part per million is what those protocols are based on. Some are based on 5,700, some are, not very many are based on 10. Um, Anyway, so, let's go further here. So I give you my, my teaching that I did on them. Now, let's just look, okay, hold on, let me finish my thought there. So if everybody bought the nanosilver, everybody bought their, their 10 ppm nanosilver, thinking that's going to cure everything, Rima Labo said it's true, and everybody else has jumped on the bandwagon without really researching this, not realizing this is an in vitro study that they're basing all of this off. And even if they said it was in vivo, I wouldn't trust them. I'm sorry. I would not trust them. 
They're government disinformation agents. But imagine if and when Ebola gets here and you've got this legion of people with 10 part per million nanosilver thinking that's all they need. They have their vitamin C status hasn't been built up, their selenium status hasn't been built up, their immune system's garbage. And they think this little 10, and then they start taking copious amounts of this and they realize this is not working. I'm still dying. Well, guess what happens then? Colloidal silver, uh, the medical professionals say, see, we told you. It's garbage. It doesn't work. It's total snake oil. That's why I think this is being done and why they're being let to say all of this. If it was really true, why haven't they shut down Rima Labo and General Stubblebine? Well, they're part of the system. That's why. They're useful in that regard. Ultimately, what that's going to be used as is a way to discredit all colloidal silver. That was the point I was trying to get to. The last part I just said there, which I think is the most important thing I've said yet about the subject. Now, nanoparticles. Let's look at some studies that have been done on nanoparticles. I don't, I've, already, I've told you this before in the past. I don't like anything nano. Um, nanoparticles are a big part of transhumanism, are a big part of Satan's coming New World Order, are a big part of big agra, big Big pharma, big everything. I, I am not an advocate for nano anything. Like what, injectable nano robots? Yeah, they got those too. I mean, that whole show that just came out recently, Transcendence, with Johnny Depp or whatever, that's all based on nanotechnology literally taking over the entire world. And I could see how that could probably, could probably figure out, I don't think God would ever let it get that bad. But I think that it could get that bad if things were, were left to Satan. The melding and merging of mankind with machines and the literal... Nano, I mean, these people became cyborgs. Part, part human, part machine. Well, you get nanoparticles injected and you are you a cyborg. Well, yeah, but it's only like 0.01% cyborg. Okay, well, you know... Um, as far as I know, Jesus Christ didn't come to die on the cross to pay the sin debt of all humanity for cyborgs. You know what I mean? In other words, if we're doing things that are changing our DNA, if we're doing things that are making us literally post-human, where we're not fully human anymore, we're part machine, where is the line that gets crossed where you can't get saved anymore? And you think Satan might be doing it for that exact purpose so that those people have no chance of ever getting saved because in God's eyes they've, they've crossed some type of line? Uh, well, I mean, yeah. I would just rather err on the side of safety there. So when I see all this nano stuff, immediately red flags go up for me. That's just me. I'm funny that way. Major food companies have rapidly introduced nanomaterials into our food with no labels and scant evidence of their safety within a regulatory vacuum. Unfortunately, despite a growing body of science calling their safety into question, our government has made very little progress in protecting the public, workers, uh, and the environment from the big risks posed by these tiny ingredients. Studies show nanoparticles can harm human health and the environment. They have been shown... Here's what nanoparticles have been shown to do. Now, this is from, um, let me read you the title of this. I forgot to do that. Forgive me. Uh, nanoparticles. Panacea or Pandora's box. Um, 
you can't get a scientist any more prestigious than David Suzuki who warns against nanoparticles. Here's what they've been shown to do. Just nanoparticles in general. Okay? Damage your DNA. Cause lesions on the liver and the kidneys. Disrupt cellular functions. Uh, that was, okay, number four. A Cornell study that's linked here found nanoparticle exposure changed the structure of the intestinal lining in chickens. Number five. Silver nanoparticles in wastewater runoff killed a third of exposed plants and microbes, according to a CBC online article. Those are silver nanoparticles. Isn't that what nanosilver is? Yeah. It's nanosilver. Number six, studies show nanoparticles can harm human health and the environment. Number seven, they can damage the lungs. Eight, cause symptoms of rashes. Nine, nasal congestion. Ten, we don't know about the long-term effects. Widespread application could lead to unintended consequences. Scientists argue we should follow the precautionary principle, which states proponents must prove products or materials are safe before they're put into common use. Before letting loose such, such technology, we should also ask who benefits. And it's, it's big, big business here. Big global business. Okay, here's the next report. Because I don't want to just use one source, David Suzuki, because, you, well, okay, that's his, his opinion. No, there's all kinds of studies that have proved this. Now, remember, this isn't saying, this isn't about colloidal silver that's not nano size. This is about anything nanoparticle related. It's just funny they, they happen to mention nano silver on more times than just about any other thing they mention overall in these reports. This is entitled Silver Nanoparticles Useful but Dangerous. From socks to medical supplies, retailers have spent the past few years seeing silver. The popular precious metal has powerful antimicrobial properties, especially when broken down to nanoparticle size. So it's been added to everything from washing machines to keyboard covers. But two new papers suggest that the miniature version of the material should be used cautiously. Silver nanoparticles are con a continuous source of ions. Oh, really? Ions? Remember what I said? That these silver, uh, the uh, nanosilver is going to produce ions, not true particulate silver? See, it's the difference between ionic silver and colloidal silver. Colloidal means it's particulate. Ions are different. Okay, and this just confirms this. Silver nanoparticles are a continuous source of ions that could be toxic for aquatic organisms that are swimming around or in the sediment, and it will end up in the food chain, said Smithia Palai, an environmental toxicologist with the Swiss Federal Institute of Aquatic Science and Technology, and the first author on a paper published in March in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. In the study, algae were exposed to silver ions, which are silver nanoparticles released in the water. Remember? Ions? Nan yeah, it's the same thing. They're silver nanoparticles released in the water. Larger pieces of silver release some ions, but at much lower concentrations, meaning a larger, like, particulate piece of silver will produce some ions, but much lower concentrations. Within 15 minutes, the algae showed signs of being exposed to a toxin, including significant reduction of photosynthesis and a defense response. This is nanosilver in the water. 
Previous research has showed that silver ions are toxic to rainbow trout, causing eggs to hatch before they are fully developed, and leading to high rates of death for the baby fish. Now, do you want to be consuming nano-silver? Just based on this alone. In 2006, Samsung introduced a line of washing machines that released silver ions into the wash water. When asked why the line was discontinued, a representative emailed the following statement to Inside Science. This is the magazine, I guess, reporting on it, or publication. This is what Samsung said. Quote, we are continuously innovating our products with new technologies to meet the highest level of quality and performance consumers have come to expect from Samsung brand. In other words, they wouldn't answer them. <laughs> they, they didn't answer the question. But they basically discontinued it and gave no reason why it was done. So it doesn't sound like it could have been good. And just on these reports right here, uh, it doesn't sound like it would be very, very good. A separate research paper published in the February issue of ACS Nano, and there's a hot link to that, studied the effects of nanosilver on the human intestinal cells. The researchers found that the exposure to nanosilver did damage to the cell's DNA and temporarily changed their protein production. So nanosilver has the potential, because it is so small, to damage our DNA. Okay? Not something I, I would really want to be putting into my body. Here's another report. This just came out. I am actually, um, I get their newsletter sent to me via email and even in the, um, the mail, okay? And this is um, entitled Nanomaterials in Organic Food. The USDA is looking the other way. This is from October 3rd, 2014 by Pamela Coleman, PhD. This story originally appeared in the fall 2014 issue of The Cultivator, which is their, their the Cornucopia Institute's quarterly print publication. I, I received this, and I'm on their mailing list. Okay, these are, these are the good guys. Okay, these are the ones that are trying to fight GMO, and they're trying to fight, you know, they're trying to have better organic labeling standards and stuff like that, okay? This is who's putting this out. This and the Pamela PhD, she's the one that wrote this. At their October 2010 meeting, the National Organic Standards Boards, or NOSB, unanimously approved a guidance document recommending that engineered nanomaterials be prohibited from certified organic products as expeditiously as possible, meaning as quickly as possible. No more nanomaterials in organic products. Because it basically makes them not organic. We respectfully request that the National Organic Program take immediate actions to implement this guidance document. End of quote. That was the actual statement. This was back in 2010 they were saying this. Okay, so uh, literally four years ago, October 2010 meeting. Program, um, uh, as of today, the USDA National Organic Program has taken no action to implement this recommendation. Engineered nanomaterials are being added to food, while consumers who have put their trust in the safety of organic foods are being kept in the dark. So see, you have to understand, this is a satanic agenda to get nanomaterials into our bodies. This isn't just about nanosilver, this is about nanomaterials in general. That's why I wanted to cover this today, because I have had it, I'm, I'm up to my eyeballs and all this nano stuff, and how it's so great. It's not great. It's a satanic agenda. And, I mean, so many Hollywood shows like that Transcendent show is very, very much proof of that. 
The only thing that saved humanity in that show, and I'm not saying you go watch it, but was the um, the, uh, the the guy whose consciousness they had uploaded, Johnny Depp, into this computer system, whose consciousness they had uploaded into this thing, which is one of the things that I played before in that video, saying that that is absolutely one of the goals of the transhumanist, to upload consciousness into computers, so we're not going to have a physical container anymore. We're literally going to live in a computer. By the year, I think it was 2050? It might, might have been 2035, I don't know. I, I remember I played that for my, I mean, it was a long time ago. But yeah, that's what happened in the show, Transcendence. And in the end, even though he had uploaded his consciousness into this computer, or they had helped, and he had basically taken over the entire world, and everything was becoming nano, and nano, they had basically littered the whole earth with uh, nanomaterial, nanorobots, literally covering the earth. He decided benevolently in the end to infect himself with a computer virus so he and all his other nanomaterial that he had created died. Yeah, I'm sure Satan would do such a nice thing for us. So that's that's what we were dealing with there. Um, And so nanomaterials are tiny particles measured in nanometers or billionths of a meter. Nanoparticles have at least one dimension of less than 100 nanometers. As a comparison, a strain of DNA is 2 nanometers across. A red blood cell is 7 to 10,000 nanometers across. Due to their small size, nanoparticles ingested in food may move throughout the body in unknown ways. There are naturally occurring nanoparticles such as smoke from wildfires and incidentally um, produced uh, and incidentally produced nanoparticles such as created in the process of flour milling. Engineered, manoma- engineered nanomaterials, which are called ENMSs, in contrast, are not naturally occurring or incidental. They are intentionally manufactured. Big difference, in other words. Common engineered nanomaterials include titanium dioxide, check your labels, nanosilver, second one listed, zinc oxide, aluminum, and carbon nanotubes. The properties of these engineered nanomaterials differ slightly from the properties of larger particles, even those of the same chemical composition, which again, true particulate colloidal silver, larger particle size, totally different deal, apples and oranges compared to a nano piece of uh, nanosilver. Many people are unaware that engineered nanomaterials can be added to foods, fruit, vegetable coatings, food packaging materials, supplements, and cosmetics. Titanium dioxide increases the whiteness of mints, milk, yogurt, and dairy substitutes. Nanomaterials are also used in chocolates, salad dressings, cereal, pasta, and other common foods. Many food companies have invested heavily in nanotechnology, the science of creating and using nanomaterials, but there are many... Um, there are many applications for food use, but according to a 2014 report by Friends of the Earth, the extent to which nanomaterials are used along the food chain continues to be shrouded in mystery because the lack of public accessibility um, of product registries or product labels. Because labeling is not required manufacturers have removed references to nanomaterials from their product labels. Meaning, you look at the label and it says titanium dioxide, but it's not going to tell you it's nano-titanium dioxide. Why? Because they don't have to label it. It's no longer possible to, to verify that products contain nanomaterials. Now, let me ask you a question. Knowing 
Satan controls big agra, big pharma, all the big food producing conglomerates, what goes in our body. And knowing that it's very near and dear to his black cold heart that there's no GMO labeling, okay, which they're fighting tooth and nail. These big devil companies are fighting tooth and nail to make sure we don't have GMO labeling. Knowing that this stuff isn't labeled and nobody hardly even knows to protest about it. But knowing that it's not labeled, do you think that might be something that would throw up a red flag for us? Knowing that they're not required to label it and that manufacturers have removed references to nanomaterials from the product labels, as a result, it's no longer possible to even verify the products have nanomaterials? You don't, you can't even know. Well, it must be pretty important to Satan if that's the case, is all I'm saying. Use of nanomaterials in food is not regulated by any U.S. federal agency. The Food and Drug Administration does not require nanomaterials to be listed on the product label. Also, if you want to get on this list, the, the link is here for this, the Cornucopia Institute. You could probably just go up there and key it in. You might want to get on it because they, they do a lot of um, oh things you can sign and stuff like that where you can voice your opinion um, for proper labeling and stuff. Anyway, let's go further. Uh, consumers may assume that the lack of federal oversight means that nanotechnology has been well studied and proven safe. But such is not as the case. The Friends of Earth report concludes nanoparticles in food can cause human health harm. Can harm human health, I'm sorry. Although the specific effects are not well understood. The report explains that these electronically manufactured nanomaterials are more chemically reactive and more bioactive than larger particles of the same chemicals. Several other organizations have written reports urging caution regarding the many uses of nanotechnology in food and requesting oversight from federal regulatory agencies. Due to their very small size, nanoparticles are more likely than larger particles to enter the human cells, cross the blood-brain barrier, meaning they get in your brain, or move across the placenta from the mother to the fetus, to the baby. Hmm, really. They've been shown to damage DNA, cause lesions in the liver and kidneys, and disrupt cellular functions. Now, this... Report is highly, highly referenced. There's 13 different references. I list them all here. And everything I, I the, the one report from Dr. Suzuki, that, um, he, he invented the Suzuki motorcycle, too. Just a little side note. No, just kidding. I just made that up. Um, but that one is also incredibly highly referenced. So this isn't just some like, oh, I'm just throwing mud against the wall here to try to convince you something. This is all highly referenced material. Um, regarding this whole subject of nanoparticles, nanomaterials, nanosilver. I think it was long overdue that I do this. So uh, I've run out of time for this part, so I'm going to end part two, and we will go to part three next.